there's a strange and peculiar dynamic that happens here every Sunday. Here inside uh, these spaces, uh, this building, uh, that we move within as we gather every week as also International Church. There is a strange and peculiar dynamic. There is a mixture of busyness and quietness. A simultaneous sense of pause and of action. If you arrive here before 4 p.m., there is mostly a lot of activity going on. There's people carrying stuff around, plugging cables, arranging flowers, putting up candles, turning on kettles with water to boil, laying out coffee cups. There's people setting up little chairs and boxes of Duplo and preparing rooms to receive kids and to receive grown-ups. There's people rehearsing songs and people fiddling around with screen and projector and mixer and all of that kind of stuff. And then the clock ticks closer to 4 p.m. when the Sunday service starts, right? And there are people sitting in the pews, perhaps chatting with each other, perhaps checking their phones, perhaps sitting quietly, taking the time to breathe and to just be there. And then we start the service, right? Ear quotes on start for those who hear this on a podcast later. Then we start the service. People in the pews receive a word of welcome. They see and listen uh, to the band playing up here on the altar and hopefully participate, singing and maybe standing. Then they sit and listen to a reflection, receive a blessing, and then go to that other hall back there where they sit around tables drinking coffee and tea, eating something that's been laid out for their enjoyment, and they talk to each other. Now, none of this is particularly unusual, of course, right? Except for a few churchy words, like pews. I don't even know why they're called that, why we don't just call them benches. But pews and Sunday service and blessing. Except for those few churchy words, I could have been describing any number of events that people might attend. You walk into a space that has been prepared for that event. Uh, You are welcomed. You sit and you watch what is going on up front. You maybe participate to some extent. Then you go and eat and drink with your friends around tables, eating food that was laid out by someone else for your enjoyment. Pretty standard. Except for one fundamental difference. And that difference is that the people setting out the coffee and the cakes and the people sitting around the tables to enjoy are the same people. Are the same people. The people sitting in the pews are the same people standing up front at the altar. Even among the people preparing spaces for the kids, there are, well, kids. Preparing things for their friends and for themselves. The people enjoying the event, if we want to call it that, are also the people setting it up. Are also the people making it happen and are also the people cleaning it up afterwards. 
brooming the crumbs and cleaning the toilets. During lockdown, we had a period in which we had, according to the regulations, we had restrictions on the number of participants allowed. And the rule, as it was stated, was that you could have X number of participants plus staff. And I thought, well, whoever thought this obviously knows nothing of OIC. Like, we got this covered. The congregation is covered on the staff part. That's just how we roll. That's how we do this. It is usually only a matter of time before this random Canadian or Norwegian dude, random, approaches you to know if you know anything about cables. And, you know, next thing you know, you're coiling cables and you're flicking switches on a sound system. The misunderstanding, I think, would be to assume that OIC functions like this, because we do, but the misunderstanding would be assuming that OIC functions like this out of pure necessity. It is a necessity, true. It is. We need people to get involved in order to function. There is no Sunday service if there aren't people getting involved. But the thing is, even if we need people to get involved in order to function as we do, we function as we do because we want to. Because we want to. It is a conscious choice. We believe that doing all this stuff, uh, serving each other, as we like to say, that it is a fundamental part of what we're doing here. It's part of what we come here to do. It is indeed a fundamental part of what shapes us as a people and as a community of faith. Our faith, the Christian faith, is a faith expressed in service. Expressed in service of which these things that we do inside this space of gathering are an expression. Not, not the only one, but they are an expression. In fact, our faith is a faith in a God who puts himself in that position, in the position of a servant. Our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ is a servant whom we serve by serving each other and the world around us. Our Lord is a servant whom we serve by serving each other and the world around us. So today what I want to do is I want to talk about that choice. I want to talk about that choice, but I want to talk about it at a quite fundamental level. Because I want to do it by looking at one of the most peculiar and remarkable acts that our Lord Jesus Christ himself chose in order to talk of himself as a servant and in order to call us into something. And it is St. John, when he is telling the gospel of Jesus Christ, who tells us this story in the chapter 13 of the gospel according to St. John. And I will read from verses 1 to 17. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for this is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This text it shapes our understanding of why Christian faith is expressed in service. Because it is an event that Jesus himself chooses to talk about that. And he's very onto it, right? And as St. John walks us through the significance of this moment, right? As he writes to those who were not in that room. And walks us through the significance of the moment. He walks us through four stages, so to speak. First, John lays the relational landscape. He describes some important things about some of the characters here. And things that we need to know in order to fully understand the story. Once he's done that, he sets the scenario. And then comes the climax in the story. And the climax in the story is the moment of revelation. This is when we realize that God is meeting us in the context of our world. In the middle of the mess and, and the confusion of creation and history. It's revelation. And then comes the fourth moment which is the moment of what we could call discipleship. And that is when revelation asks to permeate our stories. Right? That's discipleship. When revelation asks to permeate our stories. So first, John sets the relational stage. And he does this in verses 1 to 3. Right? He talks about the Passover feast, 
Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Here's the thing. John doesn't just say Jesus did this. He takes the time to talk about these things. Why? Because John is presenting the sort of the identity place from which Jesus does what he does. And this is very important. Because in this introduction, in a way, this laying of the relational landscape that John does, Jesus is affirmed as the Son, conscious of what lay before him, his death and resurrection, but also conscious of his power. The Jesus that St. John describes is, in the language of St. John, already victorious. Jesus here is nothing else than God incarnate. And John is careful with his language. Because at the doors of crucifixion, John is presenting Jesus as God himself. And Jesus acts and this God, sorry, this God who is God incarnate, this God whom Jesus is, is a God who loves to the full extent of himself. Right? The God who is love, as John himself describes in one of his other letters. So Jesus' acts are acts of love. They are born in love. They are acted out in love and towards love. And it is this Jesus, this is why this is so important, it is this Jesus who is God himself, acting from love towards love and in love, it is this Jesus who puts himself in a position of servant. So then we know who it is that is putting himself in a position of service, but we also know whom he was serving. And this is also important. He was serving his own, says John, and here in this point of history, that means especially his disciples. But to those who are reading this, this, this has expanded. Right? It has blown up to include many more. But John is more detailed, isn't he? Among them that Jesus is serving is one that is a traitor. And a traitor is counted among those whom Jesus serves. And more... Even though John doesn't specify this here, in the context of this chapter, we know that also these other ones are one who would deny him as he was being condemned, and others who would flee as soon as things got really dangerous. So that's the relational landscape. That is the God who puts himself to serve, and those are the ones whom he serves. His own, yes, but the traitor, the denier, the one that flees. And then John sets the scenario. And first, it's important to understand something of the cultural setting. And I'm not going to go into details of this, but it was part of the Jewish tradition to have a ceremonial washing before meals. And this had a religious uh, understanding to it. It had to do with purification, but it was something that you would do before meals. And uh, many people would just wash themselves, but if you came to a feast, 
especially if it came to the feast in the house of uh, somebody who could afford more or was more wealthy and had a household, you would have servants, and they are the ones who would wash the feet and the hands. No host goes around washing their guests' feet. And it's interesting that John describes the whole scene, right? He doesn't say, then Jesus washed their feet. He describes it with detail, right? Jesus taking off the robe, wrapping the towel, pouring water into the basin, using that very towel to dry their feet. This is not just a spiritual act. This is not a metaphorical act. It is a very physical, concrete act of humbling oneself and of putting oneself in a position of servant, a position known to be a position of servant. This is real, concrete service, considered by many to be menial, service for slaves. This is not Jesus using the word service for something noble and upstanding, right? This is Jesus washing dirty feet. Actual dirty feet. And he's going one by one. He's not like, okay, now I taught you how to wash, now you wash this. He goes one by one, right? He, it's a personal act of service. He is washing off whatever each single foot has stepped on. He's getting in touch with the stories that are layered on the crust on their feet. Touching it with his very hands. That is the scenario. It's not a pulpit. It's not a metaphorical image. It's Jesus undressing, towel around his waist, down on his knees, washing feet. And then comes the moment of revelation. He comes to Peter. And Peter's awkward self-awareness, right, it opens up the reality of what's going on. This is revelation. This is God meeting us in the context of our world. You can't be doing this. You are the master. I am doing it, Peter. And I need to do it. (laughs) This needs to happen. And four lessons emerge from this revelation moment between Peter and Jesus, which I want to lay out very quickly. The first is, this is not service as karma. This is grace. This is not service as karma. This is grace. Neither Jesus nor Peter need this act for their moral purification. You are clean, Jesus tells him. You are clean. I'm just washing your feet and your hands for the meal. They don't need this act for their moral purification. Jesus is not serving because he needs to. Remember how John presents him as God, right? He already had everything under his power. He is doing this because he can. But also Peter, even though Peter is called to do the same, he did not need to receive it or do it in order to earn anything. And Jesus acts in love before he asks 
that they respond. His action is not conditional. It doesn't require something from us before it is given. It's grace. It does ask something of us once it's done, but it doesn't force an answer on us, nor does it demand anything. It invites us to live an answer. So this is not a prisoner trying to get out of parole. This is the service of a free person. So that's the first thing. This is, this is not service as karma. This is grace. The second lesson is that this is about both redemption and service, but in very different senses. This is about redemption because it points to it, right? It points to the cross. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And on that same evening, Jesus shares the cup of wine and says, this is my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. So this act, it points to the cross. It points to forgiveness. It points to redemption. But the act in itself was not about purification. In that sense, it was about service. It was about serving. He was not washing their feet to purify them spiritually for eternal life. He was washing their feet because they needed it clean for the meal. To serve them. And that leads me to the third one, the third lesson, is that we must learn to be served. We must learn to be served. This is Peter's tough lesson. Starts wiggling with the idea of his master washing his dirty feet. We must learn to receive service, to be served, to be loved through actions, to be cared for. And that in itself is a call to humbling ourselves, to lay our pride aside, to allow somebody to touch the layers of crust that my story puts on my body and on my soul and on my personality and the way I react to things. I don't know. We must learn to be served. And finally, we need to learn to identify God in concrete acts of service. Not just high words and Fancy altars, lofty songs, and beautiful poetry, but in hands washing dirty feet, cutting vegetables, and cleaning bathrooms, and rolling up cables, and helping build houses, giving water to the thirsty, sitting in prison with those who are imprisoned. We need to learn to identify God in concrete acts of service. And that's when comes the moment of discipleship, right? When revelation asks to permeate our stories. Our stories. And it's that that question from Jesus, right? Do you understand what I have done for you? Do you understand what I have done for you? And I think it's very interesting that Jesus chooses this act to teach his disciples about humility and service. Because it's not like Jesus hadn't been serving throughout his whole ministry, right? He was healing people. He was preaching liberation. He was freeing. 
That's what he was doing. But he chooses this act right before the cross to make a point, right? And I believe that with this act, he makes it so that the disciples cannot reduce the notion of service to a symbolical meaning. If they had any notion of, okay, serving is doing, you know, the healing stuff, the preaching stuff, the miraculous stuff. No, I'm washing your feet. If the concept of service had been merely attached to discourse, right, to miraculous healings, to teaching, or even to his sacrifice, we could argue that it's kept for higher matters, matters of spirituality and matters of the eternal place of faith. But Jesus makes what probably was his most clear teaching about this by doing a very concrete yet necessary job. And he ends it with such a clear remark, right? He says, don't just know. Do you understand? This is it. Don't just know. Do. Don't just know. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean that this is not symbolical, right? I think it is symbolical. It is ritualistic. Some have argued that it is even sacramental. But we need to resist the temptation of making it only symbolical. That's one of our favorite Christian escape routes from actually getting our hands in each other's crusted feet. We need to resist the temptation to use the argument of symbolism to keep our hands away from each other's lives. And that's why. That's why. That's why we serve each other. That's why we make it concrete. Because our faith is a serving faith. The faith of the servant, the God who washes feet and breaks bread. We could just talk about service from the pulpit, but we would be poorer for it. We want and we need our faith to take shape and form in our bodies. In our bodies. Service is an embodiment of faith, right? And service is a practice. It's a spiritual practice that is so not spiritual. Can I say that? Of course it's spiritual, but it's so down to earth. It's not abstract in that sense. Service is discipleship. Right? It's teaching our faith, teaching our bodies, and teaching our consciousness that we are people who serve. And we do that so that we can live that way. This is my final point. What we do here in OIC is a genuine, true expression of serving each other. But if it dies here, we didn't get it.
It's not really sitting on our bodies and on our faith. Just like when we have our offerings every Sunday, uh, I, I invite you to, to help that sort of bother you towards living generously in your life or to the people around you, right? It's, it's the same with service. When we serve each other in this context, we are affirming with our bodies and with our actions the kind of faith that we live in and belong to and the kind of Lord that we serve. And that has to sit in us so strongly that it is part of who we are wherever we are. It has to be expressed in us serving our neighbors, our neighborhoods, our, the poor in our countries, in the world, and the way we do things and meet people and understand their needs as needs that I can touch through the freedom of Christ. We have to be people who dare to care and who are trained in caring and in serving. Learning to get in touch with each other's lives, learning to wash feet here and outside. Throughout these series, we've been talking about the things inside inside here, right? But they, they, they happen inside here so that they can come inside our very selves and be expressed on all the places we walk, all the people we touch, all the spaces where our presence can be an expression of the serving Lord. Not a, it's not a magical formula, right? We can spend our lives doing stuff in church and it never goes anywhere, right? There's a whole lot of people who live lives of service and never stepped into a church. But we are here. We are here. My prayer is that this weird dynamic of us being the people who receive and enjoy and also the people who put it out there and serve may be also a dynamic in the world. That we're the ones enjoying the fullness of life and getting our hands in on it so that others may also enjoy. Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, serving spirit, we... This is difficult. This is difficult. We, we struggle with it. It's, we know it, but it takes, a, it takes a while to really sit in our bodies. Thank you, Lord, 
for washing feet. Thank you for holy feet on the ground we step, holy hands on the mess of our lives, holy love that transforms us. And we pray that it may truly transform us. And we know that we need small steps. Give us the faith and the courage to take them. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. And may you know that grace. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you. Towards the reality of your lives. Towards the roads you have walked. And the pains you have carried. And the joys that you cherish that he may bring you peace. And so, may our Lord Jesus Christ give you peace, and may you go in his name and serve the Lord and serve the world joyfully.